This is a Bergen Film Club podcast. Like an old movie, removed from the frame, I am floating and looking for someone to blame. Won't you project me on the walls of your heart? I'm waiting. The real thing to start. Hello, welcome back to The Real Thing. I'm your host, Joe Lawrence. Here we go. Podcast, podcast, podcast. This podcast is an extension of Bergen Film Club, which is an independent cinema in Bergen, Norway, where we try to show films that deserve to be shown, spotlighted a bit, give a voice to those who deserve it, and show very good films, most importantly. And on this podcast, I talk about those films, uh, either by myself or with a guest, uh, to say why we chose it or their relation to the film, etc., etc. Today, I am... on my own and we're going to be talking about a very special film that has a very deep and rich history around it or all, all the context of the film has a very deep and rich history so that's what I'm going to be doing today is kind of giving a background to the film production its uh, director's lead actress specifically and then also diving into kind of the history and the allegory of the film in a way because there's so much I think that it's possible to get a lot more out of the film after knowing this information. I will say that some of the topics it gets a bit heavy towards the end so just uh just letting you know listener that we're going to be talking about some heavy topics today particularly genocide etc. So Let's get into the episode. Today we are talking about the 2009 Peruvian Spanish film The Milk of Sorrow. So, The Milk of Sorrow, or La Teta Asustada, is a Peruvian-Spanish film directed and written, produced by Claudia Iosa and stars Magali Solier. It won the Golden Bear Award, which is the highest award at the Berlin International Film Festival, and was the first Peruvian film to be nominated for the Best Foreign Picture at the 82nd Academy Awards. And just wanted to note that out of the 15 awards that it was nominated for in its entire run it won 12 there wasn't so much to say about magali solia because uh, of what i was looking for but she is in fact an indigenous peruvian person she is born to a quechua family speaks frequently of the importance of supporting indigenous languages traditions and culture that she aims to kind of advocate through her her work as an actress she's similarly also a celebrated singer performing often in indigenous languages 
and in 2017 she was declared the artist of peace by UNESCO. So she plays the lead character Fausta, who is who we follow during the Milk of Sorrow. It is said that she is suffering from a rare disease, the Milk of Sorrow, which is a rare disease which is transmitted through the breasts of women who were abused or raped during and after their pregnancy. While living in constant fear and confusion of her illness, her mother suddenly passes away. The choices she makes in her life are due to her desire to not follow in her mother's footsteps. The article Short Takes by Chris Chang calls it a poetic allusion to the aftermath of rape and the way in which trauma can be passed through generations. Which is kind of the context that we'll come to talk about uh, in some minutes now. Uh, that unfortunately the Peruvian people and especially indigenous people of Peru have been subjected to years, decades and decades of um, persecution and terrorism and government oppression and it's really just feels like it's one thing after another which I'll explain later but that's kind of the reference the frame of reference for this film is these conflicts particularly that of the shining path most of the filming was f done in Manche which is a suburban area of Pachacamac, southeast of Lima, which is the capital city of Peru, which indigenous people took over during the 1980s, this uh, Manche area, to escape terrorism. And the rest of the film was filmed in the more affluent area of Lima called Sierra Guilla. Guilla. I don't speak Spanish, just a uh, heads up. If I'm pronouncing any of these names wrong, Spanish or Portuguese, then I'm sorry. The film was largely well received with people often praising the director Yosa's use of abstract visuals to discuss difficult and abstract themes. So Claudia Yosa, who is the director of this film, is a celebrated Peruvian film director, writer, producer and author, most notably known for her work of this movie, The Milk of Sorrow. Born in Lima in 1976, she studied film direction at the university there. She moved to Madrid in the late 1990s, where she studied at the film academy Escuela, TAI. During this time, she completed the script for her first movie, Made in USA, a film which received critical acclaim but was subject to intense debate, suggesting its reinforcement of racial stereotypes of indigenous people and rather that her middle class upbringing would mean she was appropriating a culture more marginalized than she, which the article describes as cultural dyslexia. And I pulled that from the article named Cultural Dyslexia and the Political of Cross cultural excursion in Claudia Eos's Made in the USA by Diana Palavesic. The film also stars Michael Solia as the lead who supported the movie, plus many residents of the town included in the film described the film as a post-colonial feminist narrative that subverts traditional expectations of the colonizer and the colonized. I think that brings up a really good point, especially when we're discussing films that kind of look into marginalized communities and that's not necessarily from their perspective this film made in usa uh and the milk of sorrow for example some people criticize iosa um for her kind of depiction of the life there and that no matter how hard she may work to kind of try and represent it correctly she'll never like truly understand what it's like to be that marginalized or that oppressed because she grew up in like a semi-affluent area in Peru 
And I think that speaks to larger, like, kind of this idea that there's, there can be a baseline misunderstanding in a way. If it's a male director making a movie about a woman or uh, any, any director who's not part of a marginalized community making a film about a marginalized community. So that coming to mind is when we talked about The White Reindeer um, a couple episodes ago, or I recently just watched the Alex Garland movie Men, and that's really criticized because it feels like it, it can feel tone deaf in a way if you kind of allow it to be tone deaf, if you look at the perspective of it being made by a man, the movie is about a woman's experience of men. So there's a lot to kind of discuss and look at there. I think it's important to bring in context like this because I'm not personally criticizing the the director, but I can see where a lot of these people come from when they make a criticism like this. And it's like, where does it lie? Like, should no one make movies like this or should we be allowed to kind of observe and look at these things from the outside because the point of the fact is that we don't give a voice to the community itself through doing films like this again with when we talked about Sami film for example like that new wave of Sami films being made now by actual Sami indigenous people that brings a new wave and we get to like observe that culture from people who actively experience it um in a way that like does that discredit the movies that were made before that were not made by so many people but still maybe reflected the community well i think that's very applicable here as well and i'm not trying to answer that right now i'm just uh bringing up the kind of thought process around this when i was uh, doing the reading for it the Milk of Sorrow was better received with many considering this film a tasteful view on the generational atrocities faced by the indigenous people of Peru. Since then, Claudia has made El Niño Pepita, Luxoro and Aloft, and most recently Fever Dream. So concerning the criticism Iosa has faced of her depiction of indigenous people in the article New Configurations for Peruvian Cinema, The Rising Star of Claudia Iosa by Sarah Barrow, Barrow suggests that she is not in fact depicting the community themselves, but rather focusing on the harshness and the difficulties faced by indigenous people, particularly the Quechua people, who have a total population of around 8 to 9 million, most living in Peru and other parts of South America. That is seemingly another example of Western audiences widely accepting and praising films that are not necessarily so accepted in their native communities. And I think that the point that the article is making there or at least from what i understood is we as as the the west uh general can look upon films like that that kind of come to us in this package and with the limited information that we have about the history of peru for example it's definitely something that i didn't know a lot about before what, like after watching this film and before researching it if you don't have the context you can kind of just accept it as face value and think that it's like a good depiction but I think what the article was saying is not necessarily that her depiction of the indigenous people is bad but it rather that it's not a depiction at all and rather that it's talking about or considering the themes of the atrocities in a way if that 
makes sense it's more a discussion about what they go through not not the people themselves that it's not looking at the culture it's not saying how they live their lives or the customs that they follow or their language it's more so this is what they have been through and then this narrative that she creates in the milk of sorrow which is based on this folk story is how she talks about it without like explicitly talking about the community itself but that's kind of uh, the gist of that and i really recommend the movie i think i think it does kind of if you kind of just again take it at like face value of just it being a story it's very emotional and poignant and beautiful incredibly well acted by Magali Solia and just a narrative of trying to like heal from trauma that's passed down through generations to trying to like end that cycle of of hatred and sadness and pain always what the character is like trying to do is trying to like sh- shed off that thing that she's inherited from her mother in a way and then when you can look at it from like a deeper perspective with more information then I think it's good it is a good for me personally I think it does reflect not necessarily the events themselves but the aftermath and the pain that people still feel to this day I think that it discusses that quite well rather rather this aftermath rather than the actual explicit atrocities themselves so yeah watch the movie uh this episode is coming out on the 26th and i believe that we're showing it on the 28th so of february 2024 so if you're around and want to watch it then come to the film club and i hope that you'll enjoy it i am going to talk a bit about the what i I guess i just kind of generally calling the peruvian conflict and specifically about the shining path uh and this notion this is really horrible so just again uh get ready this uh notion of uh, forced sterilization and also kind of where it sort of sits today in the in the present day like what's happening with the treatment of uh indigenous people and also just the peruvian people in general so yeah buckle up it's history time so we're talking about the shining path I'm referring to the Shining Path insurgency in Peru, which is led by Abimael Guzman, unfolded between the early 1980s and the late 1990s, marking one of the darkest chapters in the country's history. This is a Maoist guerrilla group sought to establish a community state through armed struggle, and their campaign of violence had devastating consequences on and for indigenous communities. So the Shining Path is a breakaway faction of the Peruvian Communist Party, or the PCP, yeah, and it broke off in 1970. It was led by this man, Abimel Guzman, who started life as a philosophy professor at the University of Ayacucho, who, after visiting China and being particularly inspired by the ideas of Mao Zedong, decided to form this group with the idea of uniting Peru through waging a popular war, which is a Maoist strategy, which in essence means bringing the militia of the, the enemy deep within the countryside. By the 1980, the group had grown to more than 500 members, and at its peak, it had around 3,000, all more or less actively fighting on the front line. They periodically carried out attacks on police stations, communities, indigenous villages, and 
specifically ballot boxes before elections, particularly pressuring the Indigenous communities to not vote or vote for who they wanted to. One of the most infamous incidents was the massacre of the town of Luca Namaka in 1983. Shining Path militants attacked the indigenous community, accusing them of being sympathetic to the rival leftist group. The militants brutally killed around 69 men, women and children, leaving a trail of carnage that shocked the nation. The Shining Path was notorious for its brutal tactics, targeting not only government forces, but also in these indigenous populations that they perceived as collaborators or rivals of themselves. In many cases, they coerced indigenous communities into supporting their cause through intimidation and violence and villages were often caught in the crossfire between the shining path and government forces leading to widespread displacement and loss of life this idea of this people's war of bringing the fight into an area where they feel like they have more dominance taking the government militia away from the big cities kind of put the indigenous people into this war totally totally against their will Beyond direct violence, the Shining Path disrupted traditional indigenous ways of life. They imposed strict control over local populations, restricting cultural practices and communal activities. Indigenous people faced coercion to confirm, to conform to Shining Path's ideology and eroded the rich cultural tapestry of these communities and their languages. The internal conflict has had a profound and lasting effect on Peru. The scars of the Shining Path insurgency are still visible in the social and economic fabric of the country. The trauma experienced by these communities, the indigenous communities, during this period continues to impact their well-being, contributing to ongoing challenges in the pursuit of justice, reconciliation and the restoration of indigenous rights in contemporary Peru. The tide of the war changed when Alberto Fijimori took office in 1990 and launched an assault on the rebels, squeezing out the last remaining efforts of the Shining Path, but unfortunately this is not where, this was just not the beginning but a continuation of oppression of the indigenous communities, which is why I'm coming to the forced sterilization of the indigenous people. The forced sterilization of the indigenous people in Peru is another dog chapter in the country's recent history, occurring primarily during the 1990s under the government of the president Alberto Fujimori. The sterilization campaign was presented as part of a broader family planning program to limit the population growth, but was later revealed to involve coercive and often brutal methods disproportionately affecting indigenous and rural populations, specifically women. Between 1996 and 2000, an estimated 300,000 women and 22,000 men, many of whom were indigenous, were subjected to sterilization without their informed consent. The government, driven by a desire to control the growth of the population, targeted vulnerable and marginalized community, particularly those in rural areas. Health workers, often under pressure to meet sterilization quotas, resorted to unethical practices such as misleading women about the nature of procedures, performing surgeries without proper medical standards and even engaging in outright coercion. Indigenous women who had limited access to information in healthcare were particularly vulnerable to these abuses. The consequences of the forced sterilization campaign were profound and extended beyond the immediate and physical and psychological trauma experienced by these individuals. Many women suffered long-term health issues and the social fabric of the affected communities was deeply impacted. 
The campaign exacerbated existing inequalities and discrimination faced by the indigenous populations in Peru, violating their reproductive rights and autonomy. In the aftermath of this event, there has been ongoing advocacy for justice and reparations. Victims and human rights organizations have called for accountability for those responsible for orchestrating and implementing the sterilization campaign. While some legal proceedings have taken place, many argue that more needs to be done to address the lasting effects of this period in Peru's history and to ensure the protection of reproductive rights for all, with a particular focus on marginalized communities. Unfortunately, The Shining Path is the last remnant of Peru's guerrilla movement uh, from the end of the 20th century has unfortunately come back into the fold. Although it's in decline, it still remains a strong influence over this large area of Peru due to its drug, drug trafficking alliances and also secret alliances with the government. On May 23rd, 2021, a splinter group of The Shining Path reportedly killed 16 people in this area and left behind pamphlets warning people not to vote in the presidential elections scheduled for June 6th, and especially not to vote for the right-wing candidate Keiko Fujimori. Since then, the indigenous oppression, unfortunately, continues. Whether it is through this new splinter group of the Shining Path, or whether it's literally government oppression itself. A few years ago, two female governmental candidates tried to swear into the government, speaking their indigenous language and the and the present prime minister of peru told them that it didn't count because they weren't speaking portuguese and that is the horrible tale and persisting ongoing story of indigenous oppression in peru that is provided a small context with through the milk of sorrow it's a really awful thing to be known about i think i found it very upsetting to read about and this whether it's just outright oppression or literally killing these marginalized communities there is just so much oppression and hatred to indigenous communities within peru it's obviously a country that ex experiences a large amount of conflict to this day hmm. i kind of don't know how to wrap this episode up but it is incredibly sad and I encourage people to see this movie obviously but like i said i don't know necessarily that it talks so much about the the community themselves but there are a lot a lot of articles out there and i'll link to everything that i read in this episode in the show notes so if people want to read more about these communities and how wonderful they are then you can do that and also learn a bit more about the insurgency itself which is really awful but i think that it 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 is obviously to it's obviously important to know and educate ourselves as kind of very comfortable westerners like i'm sitting here in norway very very safe country just sitting in my bedroom reading information off my laptop screen so it's important for us to know and educate ourselves as well as we can about these about these genocides that are happening all over the world consistently and all the time yeah <laughs> god but i hope that you were able to kind of like learn something and observe something through the film if you do go see it or just rather just having learned about this conflict itself is something that i also think is quite important to know about but yeah 
little bit of a short episode, but uh, a lot of information there. And um, yeah, we'll be back on Thursday with our standard recommendation episodes. And yeah, got some really cool episodes coming up in the future. Um, and yeah. I know it's like tough to listen to stuff like this but like I said it's important to know about it and it's important it's important to hmm. but thank you very much for listening I've been your host Joe Lawrence goodbye this has been a Bergen Film Club production our music is by Wise John Check them out on Instagram at WISC John Official. Our logo is by Pia Sophia Brentesen. This episode was produced, mixed, and engineered by Joel Lawrence. Our researchers are Inke Schilbreibern and Mamina Nasmajit. Want to talk to us about films? Then please send us an email at podcast at bergenfilmclub.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at TheRealThingPod. Check us out on Letterboxd at BFK TheRealThing. Thank you and goodbye. Listen, follow, leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts.